Welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Mike Britton, and I'm an editorial director here at IHI. I'll be filling in for Madge Kaplan on today's show. Healthcare, and more specifically the patient safety movement, has stolen national and global headlines in recent weeks. It's probably not news to anyone listening today that earlier this month, researchers at John Hopkins called upon the CDC to rethink how it classifies the leading causes of death in the United States. The researchers argued that deadly medical errors, now conservatively estimated at 250,000 annually, should be included in the rankings, which would make medical errors the third leading cause of death in the U.S. It's a provocative idea, and it raises an interesting question about the patient safety movement. What difference would something like this make? But stepping back even further for a moment, can we really call this a movement? Are we really seeing motion in this healthcare space? That'll be part one of a four-part discussion featuring Don Goldman, IHI's Chief Medical and Scientific Officer. Don, who is newly appointed to the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality's National Advisory Council, has his fingers firmly on the pulse of the current state of quality improvement and safety. Here at IHI, he's always sharing new thinking, innovative takes on the changing healthcare landscape, and cautionary tales about infections that lurk around seemingly innocent corners. Don is never shy about sharing his views, as we'll see in just a few moments. In part two of our discussion, we'll turn to the sometimes overwhelming collection of measures, metrics, and data healthcare generates today. Part three will touch on value and the newly proposed rules for Medicare that build greater linkages between cost and quality and how physicians get paid. And in part four, we'll discuss reverse innovation. Along for the ride through these four topics, we'll also have Dave Williams, an executive director here at IHI, who teaches improvement science around the world and thinks deeply about what it takes to build the capacity for change. After the four-part discussion, we'll spend some time engaging in a rich Q&A session with you, the WIHI audience. A quick note about WIHI, in case you're new to the program. We offer WIHI live, biweekly, and after the show via IHI.org and on iTunes. On this program, our goal is to, is to lean into cutting-edge innovation and bold ideas as we look to improve health and healthcare. This week's show falls right into that category. But before we say hello to our two guests, here's IHI's John Gothier to remind all the WIHI listeners today about how to make the most of your time with us. All right. Thanks, Mike. Uh, just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right side of the screen is our chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions. So make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when, Madge opens, excuse me, when Mike opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to WIHI by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable Internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat, but a simple solution to any audio hiccup may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know we have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I'll provide a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by the guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they will send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we need your help for that. Please take some time after the program to fill out a quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Mike. Thank you, John. We'll turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway mark of the show today. We welcome tweeting during and after the program. Thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets so we can capture the conversation on social media and engage with other followers. Now, let's turn to our guests for today's show. Uh, Don Goldman, MD, works to deepen IHI's influence in improving health and health care. An essential part of Don's work is to harvest innovations from the field while forging relationships with key partners, professional and academic societies, and membership organizations. Don continues to train and mentor emerging investigators at Harvard Medical School, Boston Children's Hospital, and the Harvard School of Public Health. He was lead faculty for the massive open online course developed in collaboration with Harvard X and the T Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. As already noted, he is a member of the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality's National Advisory Council. Welcome today, Don. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And I'm really happy to see that there's a new picture of me that uh, IHI is using that uh, shows my true age instead of a uh, 
pseudo age than the old picture showed. So, uh, but it's still okay. I'm happy with it. <laughs> I think it's a great pick, Don. We all do. Uh, okay, <laughs> moving on. We uh, we're going to introduce Dave Williams, PhD, is co-lead of the Improvement Capability Focus Area. Dr. Williams is a senior improvement advisor faculty for IHI's improvement programs, including the Open School, the aforementioned MOOC, and the Improvement Advisor Professional Development Program. He coaches teams and has taught improvement science programs in the U.S. and abroad. A paramedic by background, Dr. Williams practiced in urban EMS settings for many years and is internationally known as an expert on paramedic care and emergency medical services systems. Welcome, Dave. Hey, good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be with you. And, and I also am excited you found a, a different picture of me uh, than the one we usually use. So this is, uh, this is a test. Uh, but thanks for having me. Of course. We dug, we dug into the vault for the best photos of you guys. All right, let's get started today. Uh, Don, we're going to start with you. I want to begin with the topic that kicked off our, our little introduction today, an analysis published in the British Medical Journal on May 3rd titled, Medical Error, the Third Leading Cause of Death in the U.S. This was, of course, widely picked up by the media, but it's not clear if everyone took away the same things. Could you start us off, give us a brief reminder of the central argument of the authors, and then share your reaction? Yes, uh, oh, thank you. This uh, paper, uh, which is uh, coming out of the Department of Surgery at Hopkins, uh, was not any real original research. What they did was to look at other studies that had tried to estimate the number of preventable mortalities due to error in hospitals. And, in fact, one of the studies they included in their analysis was uh, one that we did uh, in collaboration with North Carolina looking at uh, uh, harms and mortality in, in that state over a period of five or six years. Uh, and their conclusion, just averaging these studies, was that really instead of the often quoted uh, up to 98,000 preventable uh, deaths, they came up with 250,000 or so. And uh, the, the, that was treated by a lot of the media as being really important new news. And the reason that people thought that was that they uh, displayed the number in a new way. They said, look, the Centers for Disease Control Prevention publishes mortality statistics for a number of conditions, and if uh, uh, harm in hospitals and the resulting death uh, were a condition like diabetes or heart disease or stroke, it would be the third leading cause of death uh, in the country. So that's pretty sensational kind of way to portray it. In, in fact, it's not new data, and what the paper doesn't talk about at all, of course, is whether or not we're making any uh, progress in improving uh, the situation. Um, I, I can comment a little bit, Mike, if you want me uh, to, about uh, my uh, thinking on uh, mortality and, and prevention and what the authors recommended. Yeah. Uh, shall we do that now? Yeah, that would be great, Don. So, uh, yeah, you know, the, the CDC, when it puts out its mortality statistics, uses death certificates and the diagnosis that appears on death certificates. Uh, the authors of this paper said, well, why doesn't the CDC do the same thing for errors that produce mortality? And, of course, they point out that death certificates don't state that John Jones died of an error that was uh, caused in the hospital. That's not something you put on a death certificate currently. And, and they opine that maybe that's what we should do. We should have a line that says, did this patient die? Uh, in the hospital from a medical error. And, uh, you know, that's a great idea, but I, I don't think it's really very realistic. And w what I'd really like to focus on is not whether or not the CDC ranks this uh, cause of death along with diabetes, heart disease, and stroke, but what hospitals can do to try and understand the causes of these deaths and then to reduce them. And in fact, what that means is that uh, mortalities that occur in the hospital should be analyzed, analyzed very carefully. <laughs> there was an error that occurred in the hospital that contributed to that death and whether, in fact, the deaths and the error could have been prevented. And uh, a number of hospitals do this. Uh, really, all hospitals should do it. It should be curious about why 
uh, people uh, die in the hospital. It's the least they they can do. Uh, And sometimes they uh, discover uh, that deaths uh, would have been preventable and can take specific remedial action. What has to happen is to understand who were these patients who died, what were the conditions that they have, what departments or services were they on, and then to do a root cause analysis or some other examination of uh, what uh, actually happened and what could be done to prevent the the death. Uh, by the way, uh, the question of whether we're improving in reducing preventable mortality is still an open question. We do know that we're making some progress on some of the harms that contribute to uh, death. Uh, for example, central line-associated infections and uh, other uh, nosocomial or hospital-acquired infections are uh, being uh, prevented through evidence-based uh, practices. Um, I have to say that the public and the media are uh, having trouble interpreting these data because this uh, uh, Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality and Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services use different methods uh, to uh, uh, calculate these rates and come up with different answers. So I was called not long ago by... Don, we're having a little uh, issue with um, your line. Are you still there, Don? Can you hear me now? Yes, we're much better. I am. I'm talking. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know where I left off, but I was saying I'm I'm confident we're making progress in reducing some kinds of preventable harm, uh, although we still have a long way to go. That's great. Thank you for those comments, Don. You know, one of the things I heard you talk about in there, the learning from our mistakes, um, and so just a quick follow-up question. Why do you think... We, we're so quick to tout our successes in QI, but avoid largely avoid writing about and learning from the non-successes. So, why why do you think that's the case? And, and I think more more importantly, how do how do we go beyond that? Well, you, you know, in the medical literature, and in fact, in our human habit, we tend to be really excited when we succeed, and uh, we tend not to want to uh, talk in great depth about our failures. You pointed out, and uh, journals tend to want to publish dramatic findings that show we've accomplished something. They don't tend to publish papers where it's not so clear that we've uh, improved uh, much. Uh, that said, you know, we did publish our paper. Uh, uh, from North Carolina that was cited in this British Medical Journal paper that showed over a period of a number of years, uh, despite really heroic efforts and a lot of good work by North Carolina, uh, the actual number of harms had not yet started to go down. I think we've made progress since then. But, you know, by publishing that and looking at uh, what went on, we, we learned a whole lot. And I think that if we were to celebrate uh, our uh, I don't want to call them failures, but our lack of progress despite our best efforts, uh, we would uh, be much more transparent about what we've learned and what we can do from that learning to make uh, more progress in in the future. I often say when people talk about the bright spots, that's terrific, but I'd like to hear about the dark spots as well. We can learn uh, often just as much from where we didn't succeed as uh, from where we we did. That said, there's one other comment I'd like to make about mortality in uh, in the U.S. and in hospitals in general. You know, if you look at uh, risk-adjusted mortality rates in hospitals going back to, let's say, 2002, which, which I've done, there is a steady decline in hospital mortality I'm not talking about mortality due to harm or errors and that kind of thing. Just overall mortality in hospitals adjusted for risk has declined over the decade of 2002-2012, leveled off a little bit, but still making progress. And we, we should be celebrating that because that's a reflection on... Uh, all of the advances we've made in the treatment of stroke and heart attack and, and other uh, diseases uh, due to meta, uh, progress in pharmaceuticals and diagnostics and therapeutics. So, uh, you know, we, we always seem to lead with the bad news, but in fact, going in the hospital today, uh, your chances of dying are, in fact, much less than they were back in uh, 2000, 2002. Uh, we just have a lot of work to do still on medical error and the, uh, the harm it causes. Great. Thank you, Don. Great comments. Very thought-provoking. Okay, let's move on to topic two. We do have uh, a few uh, 
other big items we want to get through here. Uh, safety issues are, are top of mind for improvement in hospitals and other settings across the country and, and in many other countries as well. At the same time, here in the U.S. at least, there's huge concern that all the measurement and metrics and, and data generated to track what's been going on have hit a tipping point and there are just too many measures to be effective. A number of organizations like NQF are working on measures that matter in streamlining measures. So, so Don, I'm going to turn to you first here and then we'll um, engage Dave in the conversation. But Don, what's your perspective on the urgency of this issue and, and really what's needed? You, you know, it's, it's a mess. Uh, there are literally hundreds of measures that uh, hospitals and not just hospitals, but primary care providers and uh, are expected to uh, take care of and report. And, you know, on the surface, that sounds like it would be great to have all that measurement, but it's become so burdensome and the measures required by different payers uh, are so different uh, that it, the whole industries have sprung up uh, to uh, just get that data out. And, you know, if you go into some large health systems, you'll see uh, rows of people who are doing nothing but trying to meet all the measurement requirements. So there's a uh, and some of them, by the way, are not only um, uh, redundant, but uh, they're inconsistent. So uh, you can imagine why people are irritated and not uh, frustrated by uh, all of these uh, measurement requirements. So uh, there's a, a really healthy effort, uh, and Don Berwick has talked about this, those of you who've read his piece in the Journal of the American Medical Association, how can we reduce the measurement burden and do it dramatically? Um, and I've seen some uh, progress, uh, some sensitivity to the, uh, the dilemma that people find themselves in on the part of the federal agencies that uh, tee up a lot of these measures, certainly National Quality Forum, which uh, examines and uh, validates a lot of the measures we use is sensitive uh, to this. And uh, one example is in the uh, MACRA uh, legislation that, as you probably know, uh, fixed the doctor payment uh, mess. You know, every year there had to be this mm -hmm. con yeah. congressional crisis over what to pay doctors. And as part of that, they are, have uh, simplified the measurement requirements for physicians practicing in the United States. And I'm not going to go into all of it now. It depends on whether you're fee-for-service or whether you're going into a, a value-based payment model. But basically, there are fewer measures to report. And very importantly, all of the measurement that had to be done around meaningful use and the adoption of uh, IT in medical practice have been folded into these requirements. So uh, that's really very healthy streamlining. The trouble is that when you simplify measure and reduce the measures, we tend to focus on a few measures that are relatively high volume conditions and, and processes of care uh, that are easy to measure and kind of the low hanging fruit for measurement. Uh, and that's okay, but it doesn't reflect the full a complexity of medical care from the point of view of the physician and the care team, nor does it reflect the whole whole uh, patient who comes to see the doctor. So it's great to see focus on this, but we have to remember that what we are uh, measuring may not reflect the full uh, care that we're trying to uh, provide in high quality. Thank you for that, Don. And, and I, you know, a quick follow-up before we turn to, to Dave. You mentioned uh, the the writing Don Berwick had done around this and, of course, his um, keynote at this at this year's or last year's National Forum about ERA-3, calling for a 50% reduction in currently uh, in the metrics that are currently being used and enforced in healthcare. Um, and, and maybe this is more of a question for him, but how do we know which ones to cut and, and really how do you even begin that conversation? Yeah, you know, this is, and I've talked to Don, we had a very uh, useful conversation about this. When he talks about cutting by 50%, the, the first measures to cut are those that are redundant or inconsistent or, or don't really measure things that matter. And there's a lot of those. But then you get down to this core issue I was probably not very articulate in explaining, is then what are the most meaningful measures? And IHI has done uh, a lot of work recently on saying, well, what are the big whole system measures that we can look at that will really guide stra strategic decisions? And, and that's really important, but it's still going to be a problem measuring what matters to patients and what matters to physicians, uh, especially in a, in a, in a pay-for-performance environment. You know, if we're going to pay people on the basis of their measures that reflect the quality of care, 
there are going to be measures. If you're a orthopedic surgeon, you're going to have a set of measures. If you're an ophthalmologist, a set of measures. So I'm not that sanguine that anytime soon we're going to uh, really dig uh, deep in reducing the number of measures. I think, in fact, we may see them proliferate because every specialty, every care setting will want their own set of measures. So it's going to be really tough work getting this right. Great. Thank you. And thanks for those comments about macro. We'll turn a little more uh, to peel those layers back in, in topic three. But before we do that, Dave, I want to engage you in the conversation. You, you coach teams and organizations on measurement all the time and often share the helpful advice. Only only collect the data that you'll use. Uh, you use that a lot in the, the MOOC, and it guided a lot of our thinking. Uh, what's your perspective on the proliferation of, of data in healthcare today? Yeah, uh, well, thanks, Mike. I mean, I think one of the things that, that comes to my mind as we're having this conversation is uh, it goes back to um, an article we reference a lot in, in our work um, uh, by uh, Solberg, where it talks about the, the, the three phases of performance measurement and improvement, uh, accountability, and, mm-hmm. and, and research. And, and, and so, uh, you know, that for me drives back to asking what, what's the purpose of, of the measurement that you are um, uh, doing? And, you know, what do you, what, and that, that ties into what you were asking in terms of what, also what are you planning on doing with it? So I think in many cases, uh, when I encounter, you know, looking at dashboards, for example, within organizations, um, or, or within layers within organizations, often I'm finding uh, a ton of metrics. Uh, but then we actually start to go through and say, well, what are you measuring and for why? Um, I find that there are a lot of things that are measured um, because of historical reasons, that are measured because of uh, accountability um, uh, reasons or, or trying to do some kind of quality assurance or quality control. Um, and uh, and then there's a lot of sort of just in case measures and and so um, what what I often find is that people's um, conversations start to shift when I say well what do you you know what does this measure do to help inform your practice or your improvement work or um, how how would you act differently um, based on this measure and and uh, I, I often reference back to um, a professor of mine uh, Dr. John Adams. Uh, who used to always ask me um, when when I was uh, thinking about measurement in relation to my my dissertation research? He said, "Well, what are you going to do with that?" <laughs> uh, and I, I, I and I found that a, a very uh, provocative question because many times I would stop measuring things because I couldn't answer the question, "What am I going to do with it? Uh, how am I going to influence it?" And from an improvement perspective, we're trying to drive people to think about. Um, measurement, especially when we get down into the, uh, you know, into the project level of, of saying, what are the things that really help you understand um, what matters to the patient? Uh, what, what's the end result? And then what, what are the, the process and balancing measures that help us uh, to understand the, the working of the process and, and uh, what's going to help us get to that outcome? And how do we only uh, collect the things uh, that are in support of that? Um, one other thing I'd like to comment on, you mentioned uh, Dr. Berwick's uh, keynote where he talked about uh, ERA-3, and, and um, I can't remember uh, which number this was, but one thing that often gets referenced uh, because I think it really uh, made people really excited was the idea of reducing the number of measures. But another thing, though, that he included that I, I think is important to connect with this is he also uh, argued for uh, the increase of using statistical statistical process control. So reducing the total number of measures, but increasing the sophistication in which we look at the measures uh, that we that we keep uh, through uh, Schuhart's statistical process control. And I think that's a, a big deal. Mm. So I'll stop there. Yeah, yeah no. Can I, that's great. Yeah, sure. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead, Don. Yeah. So I just want to uh, chime in on something that I think is uh, pretty important. Uh, you mentioned, Dave, that what really matters to the patient is something we ought to really measure. And uh, that gets us to patient-reported outcomes. And uh, we're really poor uh, in the United States. In fact, globally, there isn't a really stellar effort that I'm aware of in co- collecting uh, information about the patient's functional status, their quality of life, their well-being. Uh, and, and that's a huge problem. I often hear people say, well, it's difficult to collect uh, data on how a patient's doing functionally after their knee has been replaced or their hip has been, uh, been replaced. It's, it's just so complicated. Well, actually, in an era of mobile uh, technology and smartphones, it isn't that complicated. The vast majority of people, even in people living in relatively challenging uh, conditions in poverty, now have smartphones. And 
uh, folks who've had a hip replaced are going to be more than willing on a simple smartphone uh, questionnaire, like two questions, uh, of how their functional status is. So I think it's mythology that we can't collect the data, and we definitely should. Nobody has ever asked me, and I'm 73 years old, uh, a set of standardized questions about how I'm doing with my quality of life or my functional status. I'm a pretty good doctor, so that's that's really a shame. Uh, Secondly, we always talk about at IHI, uh, measurement for improvement, and that's terrific, but the reality of the present situation is that measurement for judgment accountability is growing and going to become incredibly more important. Uh, the uh, Affordable Care Act and uh, value-based payment require demand uh, reporting, often public reporting of, a, of a measures so that people can uh, be paid. And we can talk about pay for performance in a minute if you want, uh, Mike. But uh, that's the reality. So we can talk about measurement for improvement. It's really important people to do the run charts. Uh, that's great. But uh, what uh, hospital executives and leaders are looking at is I've got to report this stuff if I want to make my bottom line. That's great, Don. Dave, do you want to add anything quick before we close out this topic? Yeah. Well, I, and I, I, I totally agree with Don in terms of, of his description of, of the, the data for judgment and, and the, the attachment to pay for performance. And it actually, it's something that we should be very mindful of as, as we think about um, uh, the science of improvement. Uh, one of the areas that we, we also talk about is, is uh, the psychology of change and, and, and the, the impact of psychology within organizations. And, and early on, that was articulated by, by Deming as being very concerned about the influence of um, incentives and and uh, extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation uh, of people with it within quality so you, with you know we, we know that you get what you pay for it but it may not actually be what you meant to get uh, uh, depending on how you incentivize things so that's a real challenge for us as, as an industry or any industry um, uh, to be uh, cautious of, of, of where we attach uh, extrinsic motivation that's that's great. Great comments from both of you. Thank you so much. We could obviously talk about measures for, for hours here on WIHI, but, but I do want to move on to topic three. I also do want to call out just real quick before we turn to topic three, uh, there's, a, there's a great bit of chat going on too, so um, some really interesting comments being made uh, over there if, if you want to take a look and, and contribute to the uh, conversation. Um, so let's move to topic three. Uh, Don, uh, this one we're going to mainly uh, turn to you on, and, and in the interest of time, maybe we can keep this one to three or four minutes as, as an answer, as we've covered some of it already. But to set the quick stage... You, you expect me to keep it three to four minutes, huh? That's, that's <laughs> Good luck. I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I, will t- I will time you. Um, Medicare, has proposed, okay. Medicare has proposed new rules linking cost and quality and how physicians get paid. You've already referenced this, called MACRA. So what do physicians have to measure here? And, and I guess what's your reaction to this uh, pretty significant change? Yeah, so uh, as I uh, uh, said before, uh, it's an effort to simplify simplify, uh, things for physicians and uh, uh, to pay them for value. It's it's a value-based payment system. You uh, do well on your quality measures and you will be incentivized and uh, get more money. And eventually, uh, as years go by, uh, you will find you're not getting as much money if you don't meet the quality metrics. So uh, it's pretty high stakes for physicians. And uh, the carrot for physicians is there are fewer measures and you have a choice. You can choose from a panel of measures, uh, and that that's uh, very helpful. As I said, uh, the uh, choice of the measures may not reflect the full complexity of your care or what really uh, the patients present with, but at least it's a uh, attempt at simplification. Uh, I would recommend uh, everyone who's interested in macro, which is a, a sea change event for uh, physicians in the country, to go to the CMS website and just Google it. Uh, and it, you'll find this is an amazing uh, document. It is very clearly written. Uh, it simplifies what's a very complex uh, piece of, uh, of ruling, uh, which, by the way, is still being refined. It's uh, that's in progress. But you, you'll, it, it's an, a, a, a t- testimonial to the government's efforts and the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, in particular, to get such a clear document out there. Of course, the document and the explanation is simple. The implementation is going to be incredibly complex, uh, as most of these major changes are. But I think most physicians I talk to like the idea that they get choice and they like the idea that they have fewer things to report. 
That's great. Thanks, Don. Just as a quick follow-up, taking a step back for a moment, what what signal is this change sending about the future of healthcare in this country? It seems like there's a bigger sort of message coming here. Yeah, so uh, the uh, the Obama administration and HHS have made it very clear uh, that they expect the types of pain in the United States to go from fee-for-service uh, which is just, you know, the more you do, the more money you get, to population-based payment, which is means that you have to uh, take into account all the costs of uh, health care uh, and the, the quality of the care you're, you're delivering, and that's how it's going to be done. It's not going to be fee-for-service. And already uh, the movement towards uh, uh, these what are called alternative payment models or APMs is ahead of schedule. So that's where we're going. The, the only concern I have about that, it's, I think it's the way to go. It, it breaks down the siloing and, and the just paying for how much you do mentality. So that's great. But a lot of organizations in this transition period are doing population management. In other words, an ACO or another organization has carved out a population that they're responsible for. They're at risk. If they don't provide high-quality care at reasonable cost, they will lose money. Or if they do, they all make money. But that's a portion of the population. It's not the population. And it doesn't really get at what I think is really important, the population health. If I'm in Detroit, I'm going to be, if I want to be responsible for a region of Detroit or all of Detroit, that's the population. Carving out a piece of that population is population management and not really getting at the AAA. That's great. Thank you. And uh, I, I threw an extra question at you, and I still think you came in under four minutes. So, so well done. <laughs> well done on that one, Don. Um, well, let's move to our fourth topic. Be- before we get to what I'm, what I'm certain will be a really rich Q&A, I, I want to get your thoughts on this term, uh, reverse innovation. So, so again, Don, we'll start with you. And then, Dave, I want to get your thoughts here as well. Just to set the, the stage a bit, IHI you know, works with improvers all over the world. Uh, including in many under-resourced settings in Africa, Ghana, Ethiopia, Nigeria, Malawi. And in Ghana in particular, as a result of Projects 5 Alive, IHI and on-the-ground partners have made tremendous gains reducing infant and under-five mortality. Innovations, some quite basic, were key and universally relevant for all improvers. But what's what's the problem? Maybe problem's not the right word, but what's the what's the issue with translating those innovations in the U.S. and perhaps in Europe? Why isn't there more curiosity with with this term reverse innovation? Yeah, so uh, before I get to the uh, issue with under-resourced settings such as Africa, let me just tell the listeners I'm sitting here in the Isle of Jersey. It's called the States of Jersey, which is a separate uh, governmental entity. Uh, And I'm here because the Commonwealth Fund has funded IHI to look at innovations in uh, developed economies that might be useful in solving some of the major problems in the United States. And we're looking at something called uh, call and check, in which the Postal Service and delivering mail checks on elderly people uh, to see how they're doing. And it's it's a wonderful innovation. And we're here with the leaders from the Henry Ford Health System who are looking at uh, doing this in Detroit, where the mail system is one of the things that's reliable, but people have a lot of trouble getting around transportation and so forth. So this is a, this is a, a good example of the curiosity that's growing in the United States. The, the issue uh, with the uh, under-resourced settings is an, uh, an intrinsic bias, or maybe it's not so intrinsic, against things coming from poor countries, especially from places like Africa. And a, a colleague, uh, Matt Harris, who was Harpers fellow working last year uh, in the United States, um, did some studies that showed that if you present the exact same innovation that says it comes from Europe uh, uh, and then, uh, say, it comes from Africa, the people looking at the one from Africa say, well, we're not so interested in that. They want the one from Europe, even though it's the exact same thing. So we have a bias against this. But beyond beyond that, which is, and by the way, you know, since we're talking about that kind of bias, I should have said, we're talking about measurement. Uh, among the measures that you can choose from now, there isn't any measure of equ- that relates to disparities in equity. Hmm. And I've talked to people at CMS about this, and, and that's going to change. Uh, it, 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 we cannot have a set of measures for United States value-based health care that includes no equity and disparities measures. So that will change. But anyway, getting back to the African experience or the European experience, one of the problems we have is that defining the technical specifications 
uh, and I mean broad technical specifications that have to be replicated with fidelity, not being really clear about that, and then being equally clear about what you can amend or adapt to your context is extremely important. You know, you can say that Detroit uh, has the same kind of maternal and infant mortality problems that they have in Malawi, and and in parts of Detroit that's Mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the context in Detroit, the government, the economy, everything is different. So what are the essential elements that you really want to take away and then adapt for the situation in Detroit? And that's what we're trying to figure out. And we've been very muddy about that. Everybody says, well, in India, there's this great program, and then they do a video, and why can't you do that in, in, in Boston? Well, Boston is not India, and uh, I, I think we're learning our way to being much better. I think we'll see more of this uh, exchange of innovation from uh, in both ways. Uh, you know, England is now... Uh, uh, the NHS is uh, experimenting with ACOs. You'd think they would need that, but they are. That's great. Thank you. Thank you, Don. Uh, Dave, have you found the same reality in, in your travels? Do you agree with Don's comments? Uh, I do. I mean, I, I I was thinking of a couple of different contexts, not necessarily always around um, uh, countries like like Africa. Although, I, you know, one thing we found, uh, for example, in our, our um, work, and, and I'll use an Africa example, is that um, we actually identified sometimes that our African work was doing more rigorous improvement um, than than other places. And when I say rigorous, not necessarily that they were uh, complex. It was actually the opposite. It was more at times they were being very, very consistent in terms of uh, and, uh, because of, of some of the environments I think that they were, were deploying improvement in being very uh, clear and deliberate and precise and picking just the right improvement methods to use and then using them in in a in a way that I would call um, rigorous in terms of trying to be very um, you know consistent in the use of PDSAs and run charts and, uh, and methods like uh, you know process mapping and and so in some ways it was interesting for us to to reflect and say well gosh you know like as as they were looking at their the project work that they were doing they were finding that they had to do that in order to to make the progress. They had to do it and be very uh, specific and, and precise in some of the places where they were, I were traveling out um, uh, to work with teams uh, and may not have the benefit of uh, you know, getting on WebExes and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and in some ways, I think for me, it was a reflection to say, gosh, we need to think about uh, are we sometimes not being um, precise about the things we need to be really um, uh, rigorous on uh, and, uh, and, and putting that same attention here. Um, another thing that popped in my, my mind, and, and Don will laugh, is um, sometimes uh, I, I think about uh, places where uh, we, you know, outside of just even just uh, countries and regions, but uh, where we don't look outside of our own um, and, and reverse engineer uh, from um, outside of our own industry. Uh, so in the MOOC, for example, the HarvardX MOOC, we um, uh, I, I told the story about uh, uh, Rudy's Barbecue, uh, a, uh, a barbecue chain that is run by an organization that won the Malcolm Baldridge Award here in Austin, Texas. And uh, and recently I was telling the story about one of the um, uh, innovative ways that I uh, saw um, supervisors at this Rudy's Barbecue uh, uh, tracking um uh, uh, the the you know the measurement of the the queue line uh, and also some of the processes that they used around um, trying to message and engage and and build uh, customer experience and I was telling this to a major health system who was trying to tackle this exact same problem uh, but they were trying to recreate it themselves and sort of uh, crowdsource it within their own organization and and I invited this example of saying well gosh you know you might want to look outside at different places. Um, like Rudy's Barbecue or your experience, you know, in, in other um, spots where there's there's local examples of the same kind of problem being tackled that we could then borrow and try to figure out how to innovate within health systems um, or, or within uh, healthcare um, that that uh, could benefit from those those same kinds of ideas. So I think there's a lot of opportunity. Yeah. For that. That's great. Thank yeah, I'm you. supposed to laugh because Dave Dave <laughs> knows that Dave knows that most of my examples on reliable care come from the restaurant industry, which I think <laughs> is a very good thing thing to study. You know, this uh, Procter and Gamble uh, has a saying that they they monitor 
the percentage of their products that were not invented by Procter & Gamble. It's this curiosity of looking outside your own walls. I'm sitting here in, in, in Jersey uh, talking about uh, something we've studied in the United States called uh, nurse family partnerships to visit young mothers and their babies and make sure everything's going well and they're not depressed and they have contraceptives if they need them and want them and so forth. And uh, the woman is saying, well, you know, we have this system we're adopting from Australia called MESH that we think is better. We studied this nurse family partnership. It didn't work well for us, but this other method is a slightly different modification that's gone gangbusters. So this is about basic curiosity and looking outside your own lives and your own institutions saying, where can we learn, uh, be it a bright spot or a dark spot? That's great. Great comments. Thank you both for that. And, and I think we're going to have a, a rich Q&A. I, I have one question, actually, that was previously submitted that we'll get to in, in just a moment. But, but John, could you remind listeners how they could uh, chime in and ask questions? Today? Yeah, thanks, Mike. Of course, uh, if you are participating in the chat in the bottom right-hand corner of your WebEx screen, make sure that you send your questions in the send to bar to all participants. Uh, that way that uh, Dave and Don can see where they're sitting um, in, in Texas and in London. And uh, Mike and I can also see here in the studio. Thank you so much, John. Uh, and, and this, is, and, again, and again, feel free to ask questions if it's uh, related to these topics, or if even something that falls outside, like this one does. Uh, Don, you had mentioned uh, equity, and in, in somewhere in your remarks, I think it was um, around uh, the the third or fourth one. But I, I'm sure you both saw the recent New York Times article showing that the gap in life expectancy between whites and blacks has narrowed. And to set the stage, let me just quote from the article for a minute here, and, and then get your thoughts on it. Um, blacks are still at a major health disadvantage compared to whites, but evidence of black gains has been building and has helped push up the ultimate measure of life expectancy. The gap between blacks and whites was seven years in 1990. By 2014, the most recent year on record, it had shrunk to 3.4 years, the smallest in history, with life expectancy at 75.6 years for blacks and 79 years for whites. And that is from the New York Times. And uh, so, Don, uh, equity is a big part of our work here at IHI. I, I just wonder, um, and, and this this uh, listener wonders, how, how how do we react to that? What, what, do we, what sense can we make of those numbers? Yeah, so uh, it's interesting. I'm looking, I don't know if the viewers uh, elsewhere can see all of the legends and text that go on the slide, it does, uh, you know, I have to show you how to use the snipping tool, I, I think, uh, guys, but, uh, I don't see any text. But what this basically, it's an annotated chart of, the uh, uh, mortality over time and life expectancy over time. And it does show that the, uh, the progress is being made for both, uh, blacks and whites, with the exception that in very recent years, and probably people have read about this, for, uh, white, uh, men, uh, there's been a plateauing, uh, in, in, in part, maybe in part due to some of the stuff you've been reading about, uh, the frustration in the middle class and opioids and uh, that kind of thing. But in general, there's improvement in both, and the gap is, gar is narrower, and that's really wonderful news. The, the not so wonderful news, it's still the big gap. If uh, I were to tell you at, at the dinner table as my child, well, uh, starting right now, you've got a three and a half year, uh, uh, lower lifespan than uh, Johnny, who plays with you in school, happens to be white. That wouldn't be uh, such a great news for my black child. So we have a way to go. And this is also highly variable depending on what you look at and where you look at it. So in almost every parameter of quality of health care, there's a disparity between, uh, and we're just talking here about white and black, there is a disparity. In, and in parts of the country, uh, especially in rural America and parts of the Deep South, the gaps are very large and, and, and unconscionable, frankly. So uh, I'm very encouraged by this. Uh, it's great news, but uh, to me it's not good enough. And when we measure, we really have to stratify our data by racial and ethnic groups so we can see uh, where the disparities are and by rich and by poor to see where the disparities are. Because if we don't reveal them and report them and talk about them, we ain't going to make progress, friends. Uh, so uh, that's what I, I, I would say. You know, the, the, there's a movement uh, to risk-adjust uh, all of our quality metrics so that safety net hospitals can be compared to hospitals that are much better off and care for a, a more well-to-do, less ill population. And that's important. That's fair. But on the other hand, at the same time, we can't obscure these differences. And, and if, if we want to risk-adjust the rates, great. But let's show the disparities by stratifying our data. And that's something we can begin to do uh, as a country and in our, each of our, and every one of our organizations uh, right away. So uh, we ought to get, get on that. 
That's great. Th thank you, Dave. Do you have anything to add to the to the conversation around around the article? I, I don't think that I could build on Don's comments. He he hit it right right out of the park. Great. Okay. Uh, so we'll turn now to uh, some of the other user submitted questions here. Uh, what was the name of the programs used to visit mothers? Don, I think you were referencing that in the Africa work. Yes. Yes. Well, sorry. What was the I'm, name? I'm sorry, what, what, what was the name of the programs used to visit mothers? Oh, it's the the nurse. Uh, well, the, the program I was talking about is actually a U.S. developed program, the Nurse Family Partnership, uh, developed by a fellow named Gary Old in Colorado. And there were several demonstration projects in the U.S. that showed uh, that this was effective in improving a, a, a variety of measures. It was then taken to the National Health Service in in the U.K. and a large randomized trial was done and showed no effect. And there's a lot to be learned there. It, uh, and I don't know that we have the time to get into it today, but it's another example of where you can have a innovation that looks very powerful in a selected population in the United States. And if you don't think very carefully about what it contributes in another context, you may spend a lot of money and do a lot of, in, of uh, implementation and not see uh, an effect. So, uh, uh, it, it's a good case study of how you learn from uh, adapting. Great. Thank you. So or much. not adapting, actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Great. Thank you. I, I want to switch gears here as, as the questions continue to, to come in. I, I want to ask a question about major scientific advances. It's, it's something we didn't really touch on at all. And, and Don, I know this is something that's, uh, that you're passionate about. It's a topic that you see making big a big difference. So can you talk about some of the major scientific advances you think that may change the healthcare conversation just as much as the Affordable Care Act, and and really more specifically, yeah. even even within those comments, what specific changes um, would you reference? Sure, and, and I'll try and be brief because it's obviously we could have the three WIHS on this, but I I have a tendency to start all of my talks with uh, celebrating the blessings, and you know there are people who get up in the quality improvement community and they start by saying the U.S. healthcare system is broken, people are dying, uh, you know, plane loads of people uh, die every day in hospitals, and uh, you know I I think we need to discuss that, but there are things to celebrate. Uh, if you look now at what's happening in cancer care. Uh, I think we have to change the whole way we talk to people about end of life and cancer because the biologics that are coming along now, the targeted therapies that are attached to nanoparticles that can target specific tissues and, and deliver uh, immunotoxic treatments or other ways to kill the cancer cells, this is revolutionary. And, and uh, you know, it seems to me, and I'm not a cancer specialist, but there literally are new drugs and new protocols uh, every uh, a few months or half year. And, and these aren't, you know, increasing lifespan by 1.2 weeks. These are game-changing kind of drugs. And I just think we have to change the way we think about what the future is going to look like with cancer chemotherapy. If you look at hepatitis C, uh, you know, it, it, I, I was thrilled to see that HIV is now a chronic disease, basically, where it can be treated with uh, chemotherapy. But if you look at hepatitis C, we can now cure hepatitis C in 12 weeks with, an oral, with oral drugs. I never thought I'd see the day when that occurred. And there are millions and millions of people with hepatitis C. The problem is it's too darn expensive to deliver to all these people. We have to do something about that. Uh, in, in terms of understanding what we call the microbiome, the bacteria, the organisms that live, live on us in, in, in our gastrointestinal tract, understanding what they have to do with health and disease is an enormous emerging field, and we're going to learn what we'll see in, in the next few years in the microbiome I think is going to be amazing. And, and finally, uh, epigenetics. This means that we all have our genes, and, and we all learned about Darwin and Mandel and all, and all that. But now we know that there are factors in the environment and in our lifestyle and things we are exposed to that work on those genes and actually change the way the genes function. That's why they're called epigenetics. Mm -hmm. And these changes can actually be inherited. So now we know it's not as simple as just, well, what's your, what are your genes? It's what are, you, what, is your epigen, what are your epigenetic phenomenon? So I don't want to go into all this because we don't have that much time, but you can tell from my voice, I am really excited. And that's why I continue to go to scientific meetings because I got to keep learning. It's just changing. That's great. Thank you. Really great comments, Don. Dave, Dave do you want to add anything? 
Well, I, I was thinking of, of a different topic, and actually it's one that I know that, that uh, Don um, has an interest in as well. And, and what, one of the things I'm wondering about uh, is, is the, the role that um, consumer wearables uh, and, and technology is going to, to play mm-hmm. in, in changing things. So, so um, uh, some of you may have seen uh, just on, on Tuesday, uh, Tim Cook, who's the, the CEO of, of Apple, um, was uh, uh, quoted as, as, as describing uh, Apple's intentions to really jump uh, into the healthcare um, space in the next few years. And um, as uh, my colleagues know, I'm, I'm uh, one of the lone Apple uh, people at IHI, but also an early <laughs> adopter. And, and I actually, uh, and I think I'm the only uh, uh, one without an Apple Watch, it feels like these days. Um, but, but one of the the uh, areas of interest is is the ability to use and Apple is just one example. I think there are other uh, devices, but devices that capture um, data uh, about people um, and some of it, you know, early on is uh, around things like movement and sleep and and that kind of stuff. But there's there's um, uh, potential that it can move into uh, uh, actually being able to test. Um, uh, you know, uh, various uh, other uh, things with with the body, and and what does that mean both in terms of um, the potential of patients having data that then helps them think about their own health, but also the ability um, for for their physicians potentially to capture data and mm-hmm. data over time uh, in relation to patients, and so there's. Uh, so a lot of interesting questions. Um, you know, so far uh, the the health kit, um, for example, on the iPhone um, doesn't seem to have taken off. Um, but like with many things, I, you know, I'm, I think it, in some ways it's it's waiting for um, people to explore um, the the potential uh, and what does that mean for apps. Uh, another uh, thing that I thought was interesting in an article uh, that I saw on CNBC is that the, it's estimated that. Um, 70% of healthcare organizations worldwide are set to invest in consumer-facing mobile applications, wearables, remote health monitoring, and virtual uh, care, um, uh, according to an IDC. I don't know what IDC is, um, but uh, uh, it does, that's the reference they're putting in. But I, but I mean, that's a huge uh, uh, introduction into this this area of, of exploration. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, you know, David, it's great. You're you're a young guy. You're interested in your health. I'm an old guy. I'm interested uh, the other end of the stick. So you don't want to I want to be safe in my home. No, I just want to be safe in my home, and I want to have I want to be well and and have dignity in my home. And when I think about what technology in the very near future is going to be able to do to connect me socially uh, to others, and this idea that elderly people aren't going to use technology is a total myth. Uh, the social connectivity that that will provide, the monitoring that will occur to keep me safe, uh, you know, it, it's just going to be totally different. And when we say, how are we going to afford the care for the elderly, we're going to be able to keep uh, older people in their homes longer, uh, enabled in large measure by uh, remote monitoring and technology. So, uh, you know, it's not all about the converted who are going to do their 10,000 steps. It's about keeping no. people well in their homes. Well, actually, you bring up, you raised two things that I was uh, had, had thought about recently. I, I have uh, older uh, parents um, and, uh, and one and who live in their own home. And there, I had uh, explored different programs now that uh, you can actually have things that monitor the mobility of people in their home so that if, um, if your parents, like, stop moving um, as much as they normally do or somebody falls, that it actually can trigger and warn you. Um, and there are going to be a number of different monitoring um, devices, I think, that will happen. Another one, and, and you mentioned from empowering people, um, one of the arguments behind um, uh, car, uh, automated cars, so here, here in Austin, uh, Google is testing their self-driving cars, um, is is the ability for people to be able to continue to be uh, mobile and get out of the house uh, even past the, the whether they are unable to drive or um, uh, reach a, an age or an ability level that they might not be able to. There's some opportunities that exist. So technology really uh, both enabling you to access the world from your home um, and and the various different uh, uh, platforms that may exist to support, uh, but also its ability to support us to to leave our home are, are very interesting. Yeah, I do want to make one last comment about this, Mike, if you don't mind, and that's that we're an improvement organization, right? And very often when I start uh, 
blathering on about technology and epigenetics and so forth, people say, well, we're an improvement organization. And, and the fact of the matter is that when we have to translate these advances into effective uh, delivery of health care at the point of care to real people, that's where the improvement skills and the implementation science really come in because we know that many are left behind, that these tools are not used appropriately or effectively for all who could benefit from them, and they're used excessively for those who can't benefit and might be harmed from them. So that's our mission at IHI. That's where improvement science meets the rest of the sciences. And uh, it's our obligation, I think, to be uh, aware of, to keep up with the developments in technology and in science and in therapeutics and diagnostics so we can be on the cutting edge of improving the delivery of those wonderful miracles uh, to the people we serve. That's great. Thank you. You know, I, I just want to take, uh, I know we're close to the top of the hour here, but I, I do want to just uh, turn to you, Don, for an answer to this quick question, um, uh, uh, kind of back to the to the regulatory requirements we talked about. Is there an effort to align extensive regulatory checklist requirements from multiple accrediting bodies and associations so that healthcare systems can spend more time doing the value-added work instead of just preparing to check off a requirement for inspection? So is, is that happening? Is it, is it going to happen? Yeah, well, you know, there's a, there's been a lot of talk and a lot of meetings about this, and I, and I think progress is being made. People are very sincere that, and know that we can't go on having every payer have a different measurement set. It just can't go on, and, and we are going to make progress. But, you know, uh, there's always self-interest and the desire to uh, differentiate yourself from the rest of the marketplace, and that's the kind of system we have. So uh, the, the voice of the provider and, even more important, the voice of the patient uh, and the community is going to be absolutely pivotal. People sit there si- silently and just keep grumbling to themselves and, and keep taking it in the ear. We're not going to change as fast as we need to. So this has to be some organizing of the voice of uh, the community and the people uh, we care for to move this along as quickly as possible. Great. Thank you for that. I'm going to turn to each of you for just a quick final thought in just one second. But, John, first, could you um, let us know about an upcoming program that we have at, w- at uh, IHI? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. I just wanted to talk about an upcoming expedition that we have coming up. Research shows that safety culture can be absent among frontline workers in skilled nursing facilities, but trigger tools can help identify opportunities for patient harm and measure adverse ed- events that occur in real time. In the IHI virtual expedition at SNF Trigger Tool, measuring patient harm in skilled nursing facilities, participants will learn how to efficiently use the IHI SNF Trigger Tool to identify patient harm. Further, teams engage in collaborative learning community consisting of peers and IHI staff to learn how to use their results to measure the effectiveness of safety improvements to reduce patient harm. The SNF virtual expedition on trigger tools will happen on August 10, 2016, and for more information, you should check out IHI.org expeditions. Thank you, John. Okay, so... Uh Dave, Don, I'm going to turn to you uh, to to give us your parting thoughts here, and and we covered an awful lot. And I'm gonna I'm gonna be uh, a little tough here and say you have 60 seconds apiece to round up your thoughts on uh, on one of the topics we covered today. So so Don, let's start with you. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of complex issues uh, we covered. Uh, I just want to say that I'm really optimistic about the future. I think U.S. healthcare is going in uh, the right direction. Uh, as, as long as we keep the patient in mind and, and co-produce with our patients and with our communities the care they want and need, uh, we'll, do, we'll do great. The, the extent to which we uh, count on policy levers and reporting and, and value-based payment, all the stuff we think up to help them, the slower it'll be. So co-production, active listening, really important. Thank you. Thanks for all your thoughtful comments today, Don. Really, really great stuff. And uh, Dave, quick final thought from you. Yeah, no, I, well, I appreciate all of you for joining us, and, and uh, it was a series of interesting uh, comments, and a, a special uh, thanks to, to Mike uh, Britton, who is uh, uh, standing in uh, uh, in the shoes of, of Madge today, our usual host, uh, did a great job. Um, one of the things that I, I guess I reflect on all the time, and I don't think it's new thinking, but I, th- I think it's something that is a constant reminder and, it, and across disciplines is that each of these topics um, – 
uh, sort of reinforced for me this need to be really clear about what we're trying to accomplish. Um, and then asking ourselves, um, you know, what, what are the things that matter in, in, in achieving what we're trying to accomplish? How do we, how do we really kind of separate um, uh, what, uh, what's important for, uh, from the noise? Uh, and, and then put our attention uh, on those things. And I think, in, you know, whether we're talking about measurement or we're talking about disparities or we're talking um, about um, gaps uh, in, in um, errors and places that we can make a difference, I think that, that having that sense of, of focus and clarity and, and precision is, is important. So thank you all. Thank you, Dave. And thanks for those kind words. Next up on WIHI, we'll be back next week on June 2nd, Nurturing Trust, Substance Abuse and Maternal and Newborn Health. And then we'll be back at the end of the month for uh, five practical strategies for managing successful improvement projects. That'll be on June 30th. A reminder that you can download the chat and any slides we use for our discussion today when you log off. Look for that option. And we'd very much appreciate your filling out a brief survey that will pop up. We want to know what worked for you today and how to continue to make WIHI a better program. Check out the archived pages for WIHI, where you'll find an audio download of this program, plus all the resources posted by tomorrow morning. You can also find the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Subscribe under Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And if you like what you hear, we would love it if you could write a review on iTunes. Any questions whatsoever, info at IHI.org is your email address. Um, feel free to suggest future show topics there as well. The people who help make WIHI possible are John Gothier, of course, Matt Morse, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rosner, Val Weber, Ruth James, and Haley Ladd. Thanks also to Joanne Endo for your help on Twitter today. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care for most of all of us. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I am Mike Britton. Have a great day. <laughs>